You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Emma Heath and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Okay, so um, welcome everybody to tonight's podcast um, discussing the topic of digital transformation in the NHS. I'm Emma and I work on the NHS team at Evolution Recruitment. We are a Crown Commercial Service Framework supplier who deliver interim digital IT and tech talent into the NHS. Our purpose at Evolution is that we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. There are three key parts to that. Firstly, our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. Second to that, what we do is collaborate with NHS organisations, helping them build high performing digital teams. And finally, how we do that is through curating and sharing insights into the ever evolving NHS and digital industry best practice, such as events like this podcast tonight. Um, so that's me. So, Luke, I'll come round to you first, if that's OK. So do you want to introduce yourself to the group? Yeah, that's fine, Emma. And hi, everyone. Um, my name's Luke Stockdale. I am the Chief Technology Officer at York and Scarborough Trust. Um, I have recently in post and I've only been in post for about um, 10 to 15, 10 days. So I'm relatively new there, but I have come from Calderdale and Huddersfield Foundation Trust, which um, Obviously, people might have been aware had quite a level of high digital maturity. So I've worked in the NHS for now over nearly three years now. So, yeah, that's me. Thank you very much, Luke. Salma, we'll come round to you next. Yeah, hi, I'm Salma Yasmin. I'm the Director of Strategy and Change and Deputy Chief Exec at South West Yorkshire Partnership NHS Foundation Trust, a neighbouring trust um, to CHFT, Luke. So good to connect with you with you here. Um, and looking forward to being part of this conversation today. Thank you very much, Salma. Um, Dr Mustafa, we'll come round to you next. Thank you. So uh, my name's Mustafa. I've been, um, it's been 14 years since I started med school, uh, but I've now got eight years experience as a data scientist. And specifically, I've led quite a few AI programmes in different NHS trusts, but also in other countries across Europe, such as Denmark. Thank you very much. And then Tom, last but not least. Oh, I don't know about that. Everyone sounds very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> a bit underwhelming now. Uh, so my name's Tom Mann. I'm Improvement Project Manager at the Sheffield Children's Hospital and I lead for digital transformation. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously a specialist paediatric trust, uh, which brings its own uh, own unique challenges and, uh, and in, in its own landscape. But, uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly love the organisation. I've actually been there for 17 years. Uh, so I've, I, 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 yeah. I know the organisation well. I'm not an expert. I'm not an IT expert, um, but uh, I think the whole thing is it's about um, is about people and uh, frontline change. Thank you very much, Tom. Okay, all right. Well, we'll just dive straight into the questions then. Um, so, Salma, we'll come round to one of your questions first. So, yours first one was, what do you consider to be important in creating the right conditions to enable successful digital transformation? So, can you just give us a little bit of an insight into that? Yeah, thanks, Emma. I, I think um, Thomas just hit the nail on the head that digital really is about people. So I think at the heart of any transformation has to be a people-centred approach, really keeping um, people involved and engaged in the co-design phase and early as possible, even in any selection phase, really, because 
part of um, getting transformation, setting it up right, particularly in relation to digital, is about being very clear about what's the problem or the challenge or the area of improvement that we want to address here and being really clear about that. I think some of the other um, key um, factors or elements to successful tra digital transformation include you know, certainly in a trust like ours, um, where we operate across four places, um, two integrated care systems, um, we've got some services that run right across regions. Um, it's complex for clinicians and staff and in terms of the work that we want to do. So being really clear as a, a board that digital ways of working are important and an integral part of the way that we want to develop and transform services is important. And I think that collective ownership, so it's got to be about how we work in, in teams and as employees and staff, but also about the kinds of services that we might deliver um, through digital. So Thanks. I think that collective, collective ownership across board has to be a key part of it. Thanks, Salma. Um, Tom, we'll come around to you first on this one. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I just couldn't agree more with what uh, Salma just said, really. That's exactly what I had in mind as well. And, and just to be clear, this is this is about the, the successful conditions for digital transformation, right? Yeah, I mean, literally, I, I had in, I've made a few little notes, really, and, and I kind of just echoed Exactly. You know, put the people who deliver the services at the centre of it because they're the experts on their services um, and, and build out really from there. And, and I think IT and digital solutions need to be the servant and not the master. Um, and, and, and absolutely, they need, these people need to inform the strategy. Um, and I think uh, it's about investing in the people that actually deliver the change as well, because it, it's one thing making big capital investment you know, on systems, you can have the best IT system in the world, but if you don't have the people to, you know, uh, get the traction with the adoption and stuff, it's just not going to get anywhere. Um, and yeah, uh, just 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 building trust and building those relationships, genuine relationships over time with with colleagues. And I think it's it's easier for me because I work in a very small organisation. Whereas as, as Sam was just saying, it's you know, obviously the the bigger you get, the more complex it gets, and, and healthcare is is complex. At uh, the, the best of times, so yeah, it's um, I am in that fortunate position where I, you know, I I, I, I walk around the organisation. Yeah, you know, we're off across across several sites, but I know people's faces, I know the names, I know them as people, and I think getting on a human level and approaching the person is 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 really important for change. So yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, Dr. Mustafa, we'll come round to you next. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I I completely agree. I think adding to that um is the communication. Um, I, I have a bit of a strange role where I'm a healthcare sort of strategy consultant, but also someone that develops and codes. And I think one of the things I've seen in, in various projects is how difficult it can be to bridge communication, partic particularly technical and clinical. Um, you know, my experience has been working with nurses that think technology is this foreign thing that they shouldn't get involved in. Um, and and I'm, I've been at uh, this consulting thing consultancy that I'm at now at Kessler for about four months and so one of the things I introduced was um, these sessions where we particularly aim at bridging the communication gap uh, between the technical consultants and the healthcare consultants and then the aim is we've been doing these sessions for a few months now the aim is that even if you're a healthcare consultant say you're a pharmacist or a doctor you can still talk about the technology at some level and if you're a technology consultant, you can still talk about the healthcare at some level. And so it really is about the people and how people come together and, and form naturally forming sort of teams and self-organizing. Thank you. And then Luke, round to you. 
Yeah, and I don't want to repeat what a lot of people have said, um, but I think there's another aspect for me about some of the conditions. It's about if we are going to take people on a change journey or work with them to deliver transformation, that we, as as people instigating that change, we understand about the priorities, so we're not doing too much change at once. Because I think that's critical, because I think in some players you can go in and you can scope can change really quickly, and it just becomes scope creep or change creep whatever the words you want to use so that's important and then building from what we said is if we are and i'm going to use the word stealing people's time if we've got clinicians time we want to use or we and i've used this this term just recently if we are stealing people's time let's do it in such a way where we are slicking our delivery we are we're not going to endless workshops that are not producing outputs that are taking months and months to do and how do we structure ourselves in a way that we can do that change curve as, as slick, professional, mature as possible, but still building from what everyone said on the call, um, still get them involved. Because the last thing you want to do, and you've all been in the multiple workshops that you know are not going to go anywhere, know they're going to put loads of persons on a wall, but no actual output. So I think there's a big value in there about integrity, about, okay, we're going to start on this process, we're going to finish it to the end. And then the next bit for me is about this continuous improvement over delayed perfection and how do we do some really simple things to build confidence and get that end to end and that's me coming from more of an agile background to say well we don't need to know it fully yet but if we can do two percent better today and we can deliver that within a week let's do it and if we can do 10 percent next week we'll do it but we might not never get to 100 percent where we want to get to and i think that's the last point for the conditions is the expectations not being platinum standard when silver will do because if we spend too long getting to platinum in one area <laughs> we've then left other colleagues who we can't support so sometimes good is good enough and that's probably not what people want to hear but actually the, re the reality is we haven't got masses of digital colleagues who can deliver the change and also people don't want the change and also if we do so it's about getting that balance right but i think it's to summarize what i've said that continuous improvement over delayed perfection and also just getting the right priorities right and doing it in a slick professional way thanks luke salma how does that answer your question for you i mean spot on really i don't you know i don't think there's anything i'd want to add other than i think just linking to luke's final point absolutely about being on a journey and continuous improvement has to be key because there is never an end state as in such. Um, but I think as part of that continuous um, improvement is creating a culture of learning. So, um, you know, learning and iteratively improving the adoption, the system, the processes. Um, and really, I think for clinicians and clinical services, they've got to be able to see how it fits into the clinical journey um, for, for them, for it be hardwired otherwise it'll always feel like an add-on so I think you know they're absolutely key conditions the only other thing that I'd say is fundamentally it's got to add value it's got to make things better and if people can't see how it's making things better even when they're involved then it's likely that over time there'll be less and less interest and engagement so it's it's constantly reviewing what's the added value what are the outcomes even if they're stepped and staged outcomes to get to the final goal which might be you know to release time to care for really busy clinical staff we might not get there in year one but, but really being upfront and honest and keeping an eye on that thank you salma and um, we're coming back around to you again for your second question um so that was what is the role of clinical leadership in ensuring successful digital transformation i think we've probably touched on it because i think one of the key <laughs> successful transformation is clinical leadership um and involvement and i'll just give an example and i'm sure it's the same for, for luke when you were doing it at chft because you were learning partners for us certainly when we were 
um, transitioning from our old clinical record system to our current one. And actually, um, loss of confidence in a system by clinicians is absolutely the ultimate place that you don't want to be. Um, and we'd got a situation where people had lost confidence in our previous system um, and yet that same system works brilliantly in other organizations but the journey we'd been on had been had resulted in that and part of selecting the new system we felt it was incredibly important to involve staff from right across our organization and um, we did and that there, were, there were hundreds of staff that were involved in selecting that so really involving staff from the beginning and I think the added advantage is that clinicians day-to-day work with the very problems and the issues and the areas of improvement that we want to help address and I think involving them to co-design, to co-create, to co-deliver is much more likely um, to lead to successful adoption and sustainability of the solutions. If, it, if, if it's thrust upon them, there's going to be a lack of engagement, involvement and understanding from the start. So really, I think involving them in helping shape the priorities for the organisation is really important because then at least the trade-offs in terms of where we invest time, energy and resource and the kinds of change that we support is negotiated with staff at the front line because we can't do everything as colleagues have said already. Thanks Salma. Um, Tom have you got any extra thoughts? Um, yeah and that's with regards to clinical leadership. Yeah yeah, yeah no that absolutely and again it just just it's just so nice to hear uh, everybody being on on the same page with this stuff you know it's like reading my mind really but um, we're um, yeah, we've we've got a really strong digital uh, team that's that's uh, from a clinical point of view that's I suppose been put together over the last couple of years and and it has made such a difference from from that sort of um, I suppose from a few years back when we were sort of imposing new systems on on clinicians to where they're kind of leading the change and so we have a um, a clinical a clinical safety officer who's very active our, you know um, chief clinical information officer we've got several lead digital nurses and that's what they they do their job is to deliver that transformational change we have a, um, a, a modern matron who's who's responsible for for, for digital we, we, we basically have got a lot of clinical people who who have either full time roles or part or wear a hat, uh, which is which is that. But we we have a couple of basically we're we're delivering um, uh, an EPR solution at the moment that has several different components, and and we have um, we're very very fortunate to have two meetings every week, which involve all those people I've just just mentioned, and the the attendance is really really good, and it means that. That just makes such a world of difference because it means that if there are block blockages or decision points, then those clinical people are there to make them, which which just makes everything move along that that bit quicker. And they're 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 kind of on the journey, but they're driving that journey. Um, and it's and it's a pleasure because I've 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 worked as I say in the same organisation where we haven't had that, and it is it's like night and day. So yeah, it's it's made a really big difference to us. Thanks, Tom. Um, Dr. Mustafa. Yeah, no, really interesting. Um, I when I studied data science, it was eight years ago, and at the time, it was the first data science degree, and um, you, you'd be, re you know, it was very difficult. I found back then in the first three years to get proper clinical buy-in, as in, um, you know, my medical colleagues from medical school. If I told them what I did, none of them even knew what I was doing. They thought I was doing some sort of weird science in a lab. Um, whereas I've seen a real change, particularly these sort of last five years, and it's been going in the right direction, definitely, um, where, you know, people, uh, clinicians are more aware, nurses are more aware, 
um, I remember one of my first projects, a nurse, we were talking about some um, some data systems. She says, oh, I don't do that technology stuff. And and that's changing. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, there's still a way to go, but it's going in the right direction. And I think in terms of consulting, it's, it's, I've seen a change as well. One of the first things you do now is you get clinical buy-in very early on, even sometimes before the project even starts. Um, obviously, that you get the CCIO involved and so on. Um, and, and, and I don't think that was as much the case eight years ago. So it's great to see so much change in just such a few years. Thank you very much. Then, Luke, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think, no, I think it's um, clinical leadership's important. And I think on, on any journey, I think one, it's the, the key messengers on, on any aspect of what we do, because they're seeing it from different aspects. And I, and I, and I also think it's important to, to take that a bit wider than just your, your nursing colleagues. You've also you've got different specialties within there where clinical leadership is important. So your midwifery, your OTs, your your, your um, allied health um, professionals, etc. So it's it's wider than that. So one of the key messengers, and I think having them conversations, they can ignite conversations because they're talking a language that can really help drive out the best solution. And as much as we think we people might think they know, actually the end users are important. But actually, if you have someone in that room who steps up and puts the puts a hand up and asks us and takes that leadership role, who knows the subject matter expert, it's quite quite rewarding. And I think the other aspect that they know is they understand the benefits of what they're trying to get to because they're the end users, but they understand it from a clinical perspective. And there's been conversations where I've had clinicians talk in another language um in, in latin for, for, for a couple of minutes and but then they brought it back but i, th- I think it, that conversation that leadership and that's what the word i'm going to use because it is that leadership of getting to bit and and to take it to a negative place they also understand the consequences of not getting it right which actually sometimes being able to say if we don't do this right or we don't do this change right or we we design this form right or this allergy button whatever that might and let me just using a, a simple example because i'm non-clinician that is the and then be able to explain it from a different aspect of the benefits but also telling people this is here to protect you from a nursing community or from a clinician community on how you fill in the patient record in i think that's as well really important and that's where that leadership and someone being brave enough to say that um because yes we can always think positive benefits 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 but actually the benefit of not doing it wrong is also a benefit um so i think that that's another aspect from my side of specifically on clinical leadership and someone stepping above and just taking ownership and driving them conversations thank you luke it's really nice to see like when you're all kind of like talking you're all like laughing and smiling along so i can i think that you all kind of agree on uh, the points that have been discussed so uh, perfect how does that answer your question salma yeah i mean it, it is really heartening i think because gone it feels like gone are the days where uh, technical change was imposed and i'm you know i'm a nurse by background i still say i'm a proud nurse irrespective of the level i work at and um, you know i remember many years ago technology coming down you didn't even understand what it was supposed to help you do let alone anything else so you spent all your time as clinical teams moaning about it which is absolutely not where we want to be so it feels really heartening that we are at a place where we're seeing strong clinical leadership around the digital agenda and i think you know back to luke and um, other colleagues points is that this is a generational thing as well and if we're building services fit for the future in the 21st century then actually we're going to have people coming through that have grown up with technology and digital and you know i look at my three-year-old niece and she knows how to swerve through a phone and get to YouTube and, you know, she might then hand it to you to put something in, but she knows exactly what she's doing. 
for them, a digital world, a digital care and support is going to be much more in tune with what they want and what their preferences and choices are than perhaps an older generation. Thank you, Salma. Tom, we'll come in round to you next for one of your first questions. Um, so we'll go with how do we ensure we are digitally inclusive to all patients across the socioeconomic spectrum? Yeah, I mean, the reason I've asked this is because I just have, have no idea. I just think it's a really tough one because when we're trying to, you know, in the business of of, of pushing digital, it's not it's not the solution for everybody, is it? You know, if they don't have, if they, if they can't afford Wi-Fi or, or there are just so many circumstances where, it's that, that we just need to think differently and we need to have that alternative or a way to facilitate that that they that they they don't it, we don't create a two-tier system and that we don't create inequalities really with what we do and, and it's hard and you know we've been doing a remote monitoring project that's that's one of the things we've been doing of late and um yeah just ensuring that 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 they have that um equality in terms of devices we we assume that everybody's got a smartphone or that people have got tablet they just don't necessarily have that um we, what i would say is i suppose the only the only thing that i have i would say is that, that there are organizations partnership organizations out there who specialize in this now which is really really good uh, and we have worked with one of those um and 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 I, there was there was I I forget the name of the specific organisation, but there was one in Leeds. Um, I must dig out the chap's details because he was just so in tune. He, he was like a subject matter expert, and so he really knew his community and his people well, and was able to give some great advice on the project. But yeah, I'm, I'm putting it out there really because I, I it's something that I struggle with, um, and that we as an organisation do. Thank you, Tom. Um, Dr. Mustafa, we'll come around to you first on this one. What are your thoughts? It's, it's such a brilliant question. I'm not sure I have the most detailed answer, but I, I, I just want to build on the question, if that's OK, um, yeah. because I think the, the way I look at this is, you know, it's particularly in the context of ICSs and population health management. Those um, new vehicles that are coming about are aimed at helping tackle this problem. However, if we take a step back, um, to think about this, the ICSs in particular are uh, led by their integrated data. However, if you might come from certain socioeconomic backgrounds, you'll be generating less data. So we're actually potentially increasing bias, not reducing it. And I think that's something that's not necessarily discussed about uh, enough. There's almost this um, inequality of data production. You know, and, and currently most data that we use for, um, you know, population health management comes from hospitals and GPs. But what about those below the iceberg who um, are in the community who don't generate data in, in hospitals and GPs? How do we address their healthcare needs? So, you know, in, in conclusion, one of the aspects has to be about making sure we generate data for everyone equally and we don't accidentally focus our care on those who generate the most data rather than those who need the care the most. Thank you. Um, Luke, we'll come around to you. What are your thoughts on, on that? Great. It's a, it's a good question. And I think, so I think you summed it up, Tom, when you, when you said one solution doesn't fit all. So I think if we take it from two, two aspects, one, if we, those that can and want to, if you want the Amazon experience in healthcare, yeah, and that's a great proportion of people now who use Amazon, yada, yada, yada. They will want to do that, be able to choose bookings, do that, everything else. What we need to do is say we provide that for that cohort of people. So actually, let's not we're not digitally excluding them. We're meeting their digital expectations. So let's flip it. We're meeting their digital expectations. However, what does that give us? 
that gives us extra capacity within the system where we then can cater for the people who are digitally excluded and come up with them. Now, I'm going to use the word digitally excluded, but what I mean by that is how do we structure this in a different way and look through a different lens? So, for instance, I've seen things very successful at local authorities where they've managed to get 80% digital, keep the same staffing levels, but then staffing have then focused on 20% who would never want to be digital, but actually we might be tackling other things. So let's say we might do, they did like a coffee and a chat campaign and someone who's not spoke to someone for a week has come in and had a chat and they've talked about different things and the benefits and the well-being, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes digital would have only made their loneliness worse, but actually creating capacity in the system meant we could focus on it. And that made, that made the 80% of people who could use the technology really happy we've met their digital expectations but the people who are not using the technology we've met their expectations they're not digital but we've actually got them into we've spoken to them we've had some face-to-face -face time i'm uh, what is it cash rich time poor kind of people with full-on go 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 i want to be able to book my appointment half 11 at night certain demographics of populations might not want to do that so i think it's sometimes thinking about actually what's the right solution but digital might enable that for them cohorts and not directly touch them if that makes sense and i, and I know that's probably don't answer the question on how you digital that because you you can be give devices out you can give um you can give devices you can give and i've seen and previous i've seen like things with education where they give laptops out and they thought that were really good actual the consequence of it that learner that student really needed to be in school because the grades have dropped so yes, we've enabled them to be digital enabled. We've given them a laptop, they've worked from home, we've given them data. But once they're at home, they've not had that support from the parents or from family members. So actually, we've all we've done is made the situation worse by giving digital. The actual solution there would be not to give them a laptop, not to give them data and ask that student to come in on site during COVID and uh, obviously safely, etc. But I think it's sometimes digital is not always the answer but it creates capacity and efficiencies in the system to enable us to focus on it. That's my point. Thanks, Luke. Sam, we'll come round to you. Yeah, I think just building on um, Luke's points, really. So as a trust, we've been on a journey like many trusts where we've moved from um, a strategic position where we've said, actually, we want to be digital by default. So everything we do, we need to be thinking about a digital solution for it. We've actually, I think COVID accelerated digital adoption and ways of working. Um, but through that, actually, we've been able to take a lot of learning about what works and what doesn't work and where the risks might be for the end users. And I think building on that, where we've got to now is we say that actually digital approaches and solutions have to be based on uh, choice, preference um, and need based on a shared understanding of risk with service users and their carers and their families. And um, ultimately for us, I mean, as a, a mental health trust, an example of that might be some a, a new mum who is referred to the perinatal mental health services is not known to the team. Nothing replaces that face to face uh, contact or visit in their home environment to see them um, how they're interacting with their other children children with family members what the environment's like and and to develop a co-produced care plan from that point on might well be not just um the safest way of developing um, a, a relationship and a care plan, but ensure the best outcomes possible. But equally, we've been able to get out to vast numbers of people that we wouldn't have previously through our um, recovery colleges and our Creative Minds, um, which is our linked charity that really, I suppose, um, supports creative and cultural opportunities for people with mental health issues in neighbourhoods. Um, and they've been able to overnight really deliver much of that digitally, which wasn't 
we couldn't do that before. And the way we did that was to support people to have kit and equipment and voluntary sector services, building capacity there. But I think back to Mustafa's point, I think the um, integrated care systems also can play a big role. And I think working with our local authority partners, the voluntary and community sector, um, and through our integrated care systems to make sure that we're thinking about people's needs in communities in a very sustainable way um, is going to be key. Um, and then the final point I wanted to make was that um, for us as a trust, we are considering um, how do we, for those people that might have a medium to long term relationship with us because they've got severe and enduring mental health issues, how do we support them if they choose to have check ins um, or outpatient appointments with their consultant or their nurse? Um, how do they access that? So we, we're thinking about a loaning and gifting scheme um, directly as a trust and seeing that as part of the investment that we need to make to enable uh, choice for people. Um, but I think I think we've got a way to go on this, but it's an incredibly important agenda. And the other step that we have taken is um, post-COVID, um, our Chief Clinical Information Officer, Bida, who's absolutely fantastic in really engaging our clinicians across the board, um, has introduced um, um, uh, as part of this initial assessment a conversation with service users about how they'd want to be, uh, how they'd want to receive their care uh, and whether they had the right equipment or not and whether we could support them around that. Thank you, Salma. Um, Tom, round, back round to you. Does that kind of like give you a little bit more food for thought? It, it really does. It was just a very rich range of different answers and really good stuff to be thinking about, actually. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't quite thought of, of, of things in those ways. So, no, thank you, everyone. That was really helpful. Thank you, Tom. Um, well, we'll back around to you again for your second question. <laughs> um, so that was, what are the best remedies for change fatigue amongst colleagues? Yeah, so I just think that this was this is a timely question. Um, what what with the pandemic, and I think during the pandemic, I mean, I, I my previous role, I worked for a number of years as an operational manager in surgery and critical care, and obviously, you know, there were just so many um, so many changes um, to in terms of what they needed to do to test patients to on the social distancing on the on the on the PPE it was like daily it was just they just had to just change so often and I thought to manage that to to, to, to sort of be on the um, non-clinical end of that was stressful enough but when you're dealing with you know um, patients on the operating table and, and whatnot it's just just must have been so stressful so but on top of that um, we, you know we've had a period where obviously you know the NHS received quite a lot of capital funding um during the pandemic um which meant that you know we, we were encouraged to be creative about solving our challenges and waiting list challenges and all that which meant there were just an enormous amount of, of, of projects that just this popped up overnight and and so th there's that angle as well where where there's just so much going on and so much change and i suppose it's really going back to what luke was saying earlier it's about actually being focused and prioritizing and working out you know what what is that what are our greatest priorities and what do we need to tackle first and to and to kind of chunk it up really is, is probably the way forward um but also to um to, to, i suppose to look after our colleagues and and and, and, to, and, and from an organizational leadership point of view do things which um uh, i suppose nourish them and uh and, and make them feel good coming to work as, as good as they can do so you know we've we did, We've done things. Um, I'm just trying to think of some examples, but there have been. We've recently done a, a thank you day that was led by our people director. Um, you know, and there was kind of an event where uh, 
it, you know, just gratitude really for what everyone's done and, and and lots of things like that. I think I think our our leaders are quite are quite big like that. But yeah, it's just when we still need to, like you know, it's continuous improvement, isn't it? It's it's never going to stop changing. But it's just how do you <laughs> give people the energy to do it successfully? Thanks, Tom. Um, Luke, we'll come round to you first on this one. Yeah, so, no, I think it's a real good question, actually, and one that I, I thought about quite a long time, actually. So I think I think the definition of done is really important. And the reason for that is if you tell me I'm finished at XYZ point and then I never get there and that keeps moving, I think it's trying to make us into this circular cycle of continuous improvement because actually, and actually make a not to make it make the frameworks and structures of your day understand that you're going to need change and i think and i think it actually starts back from recruitment as well and working with colleagues and and coaching people on change to accept change because i think that's really important how you adapt and how you you kind of take it in different ways because i think that was important like during covid and the, the just things changing all the time if we said put posters up it's like this and then we put things up like this i think the poster should have been a dear to the local guidance at the time of in your in your morning meeting that would have been a much better one because in your mind you're not meeting a set of criteria that we've created we don't set the rules but we don't define them we just the defi- the definitions done on a daily basis and we get people used to that if does that make sense about trying to get that separation of the actual rules yeah. not there the rule is follow the rules from the morning and i think trying to take that approach and i know it's really pragmatic in what we're doing but i think that sets people's minds that ease and it would do mine because I'm very structured and how I like things done. So I think that's one aspect. I think the other aspect on change, and especially during COVID, if that's what we're zooming in on, but wider than that, it's trying to make it so it's enjoyable because I think people don't find it enjoyable, do they? And I think it's how do we make it fun and actually make a bit of a buzz around it because the fatigue is it comes in, a, and I use this word a lot, like a 1990s newsletter it comes in on a 1990s spreadsheet that if and we all laugh but you could see it and i can close my eyes and i could i mean many moons ago it's like 30 years old how it's delivered to me and it's like there's different ways of delivering it like we've just introduced well we've just done a daily stand-up and we've done different things this morning in the scarborough and york office let's do it differently and let's and then that might help people deal with it i think that's what i'm saying and, and apologies for 1990 people who like spreadsheets and old newsletters but I think for me it's how do we embrace modern ways of working. Thanks Luke. Salma we'll come around to you next. Um, thanks Emma. I mean I would echo what colleagues have said but I do think that to support staff where we you know we are in a culture of continuous change but I think if we embed a culture of continuous learning and improvement we have to invest in the infrastructure to enable and support that um, so I think you know change staff being alongside clinical staff on that journey as well as IT staff so having a trio model um, I think to enable change to happen so at different times different people in the in the change team can take the heavy lifting is incredibly important and I think you know we've got an integrated change team here they support um, clinical teams to make that change happen you know technical teams work alongside them come support it so I think really thinking about the infrastructure to support clinical teams to make that change happen because they've still got a day job while they're improving um, I think that's back to collective ownership and leadership and really harnessing that right through the organization and then the final point I'd, I'd like to make is that 
Um, I think if staff um, are involved from the outset, whether they're clinical staff or non-clinical staff, because you're look at looking at ways of working, then they're much like more likely to feel energised by the change because they've got a vested interest in it. They're, they're feeling heard, they're feeling valued, they're feeling connected to it, and they're part of driving something that will make things better. And that's what gets us out of bed every day for all, most of us. That's why we come to work. So I think it's, it's ensuring that the way in which we support the change and enable the change connects to what matters most to people that are going to be involved in the change. Thank you, Salma. Dr Mustafa, on to you. Yeah, I think um, really echoing what people have said, um, I think a word that people have mentioned but have indirectly referenced is sort of the culture um, around change. And, you know, I'll just give you two examples from my experience. Um, when I was a HCA, so um, healthcare assistant, you know, in that job, I just wanted things to be the same because it's patient lives, you know, I wasn't doing, and, and you, there's a lot of aspects of risk. C contrast that to being a developer, it's all about change. And I think when it comes to change in the NHS, it's about understanding, you know, the clinicians and, and the workers and adversary to risk, but also the necessity for change. And and one thing that I've, I've always thought about is, you know, when you're an FY1, you get half a day every two weeks just to focus on study time. And I always felt something similar was needed for change because we agree that we need a culture where change is naturally part of the cycle but it's about I think having the right strategy and I think the other word mentioned was infrastructure to enable that culture so that change doesn't become a burden but it becomes a good balance between the everyday tasks and and, and the change tasks and you know um, if, if we didn't have if, if one ones didn't have those half a day every two weeks to focus on studying they probably wouldn't be able to study nowhere near as much and similarly with change if we don't give it the right time energy and commitment and and really build it from the ground up as people have mentioned previously it's it's, it's simply not going to happen it's going to become a burden so you know really doing the patient questionnaires and understanding what strategies and what enable enablement of culture enables it to not be a burden i think that's the direction things are going and i think that's the direction it needs to go thank you tom how does that answer your question for you yeah excellent really really good um thank you everybody Fe feeling more energized now actually after all that was great <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> good. perfect all right well we're on to the very final question so salmon we're coming back around to you um so the final question is how do we learn from failure or from change that does not stick? I think it's back to what we talked about. And I think what's been at the heart of this conversation has been that actually digital transformation or improvement is about people. And I think creating a psychologically safe culture where people can say this isn't working or this is what's getting in the way um, right through the change journey is incredibly important. I think equally as important is being able to hold up the mirror. So if we've made a commitment to do something collectively, I mean, what we don't want to be is utopian about people involvement, do we? At the, at the end of the day, in all relationships, there's some give and get. And I think sometimes we need to, because there's you know, a financial commitment, resource commitment, um, and it might be something we've prioritized as an organization, we want it to succeed. But I think remaining open to hearing feedback from people that are at the front line or at the heart of the change process is, is really, really important. And I think, you know, particularly where there's complex um, change, um, which has high risk and cost attached to it, you know, good governance processes at every level so that, you know, the board's hearing what's happening at the front line, how they're experiencing the change process and whether it's working or not, and keeping them along that journey is incredibly important as well. Thanks, Alma. Tom, we'll come round to you first on this one. Yeah, I think there's, 
that's I agree really in that I think authenticity is really important and for people being able to to, to to admit that actually it didn't work so well and to maybe take it away from being about the person and just and just kind of step back and be a bit more objective about what what, what was it you know and and, and and use it as an opportunity to learn um and use and, and really it's it's the classic Edison quote isn't it about uh, you know well what did it feel to fail a thousand times well I didn't fail a thousand times I just took a thousand steps to get there uh, and, and, and it is that really it's having that kind of attitude and lens to it um, that I think is, is is the right way to go about failure and, and, and well welcoming it as an opportunity to learn as I say I think is, is probably the best best thing and, and really that's with with projects it's you know it's that's that's what I say to people you know I'd rather although it's lovely to hear when things are going well I'd rather hear when things aren't going well because that's where you get the value and the learning from so yeah and that's 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 what I'd say about that thank you Tom um Dr Mustafa what do you think yeah no no I completely agree in in um in development we have this thing called fail fast which is I'd rather really know when I'm failing really quickly and have the feedback um to know that I, you know, I think one thing that also isn't communicated enough, you know, we do all these projects, but the reality is, I, I don't, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it is a large number of digital transformation projects do not achieve the aims they set out to achieve. This is particularly the case in data science. I think the number was as high as 80%. And that's not a bad thing, though, because, you know, it's not communicated enough that that's meant to happen. And what we're meant to do is find the 20% that do work and make sure they're spread across the system. So I think people take, you know, failure personally, it's not something to take personally. And and one thing I would like to add is uh, a, a word I made up, which is precision digital transformation. Um, just because it worked in one hospital doesn't mean necessarily, necessarily will work in another hospital. And I really learned this um, to do with patient flows, working on a patient flow system. And one thing that really surprised me is big hospitals have completely different patient flow to small hospitals. You, do, you need completely different solutions. And it's about appreciating that, that one, sit, one uh, size doesn't fit all and appreciating, you know, what type of organization are you in? What meets your needs might not meet someone else's needs and really appreciating the um, complexity of the picture. So those two things, you know, I think are really uh, important and valid. Thank you. And then Luke, round to you for your final thoughts before we close off. Yeah, I think the, I think, that fail fast is that what come to my mind as well about get the feedback loops right etc but also i go back to this what's definition of done so that's not why we put business cases together that are xyz and we put xyz in them to get them through to make people yada yada and we get them to a point but actually if you think about it from a capability curve we might actually get something over the line sooner rather than later so actually let's think about it logically like and, and i'll go back to my um, and I literally just had the conversation. Um, uh, we've got a platinum standard, but we, silver would see a massive improvement. But what we've judged is we've deemed it a failure because we've said we're going to do platinum. Well, yes, it is a failure on our own expectations, but we've delivered X, Y, Z, 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 and Z. But we've not done it because we've 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 benchmarking it against that. So I think there's a really important aspect on on definition of done. So we don't set ourselves up to fail. But the other aspect is when we do fail, it's how we do it and learn from it and 
I'm a massive believer, and you, my team hear me say this a lot, we gang up on the problem, not the people. I am not here. Yeah, someone's writing that down already, so that's good. That's what it is, and I'm not, I am not going to sit here and like, what is the problem? And how are we going to solve it? It's not one person. Probably it's all our problems to solve. And I think doing that gracefully gives people a thing where they're willing to, an environment where they're willing to run experiments. So, well, so come back to me in two weeks, run an experiment, tell me if it's good or bad. Well, what if I fail? Don't matter. Tell me the feedback. Let's, But let's call it what it is. <laughs> it's an experiment. <laughs> it might be failure uh, and it might be a car crash, but that's fine. We've got no issues with that. But what, what's your next experiment then? And that culture of not being scared of being made to make a mistake, that's the other thing for me is, yeah, people don't come to job to do a... People, I'm a firm believer in colleagues, do not come to work to do a bad job. If we give them the space to be creative and safe in that space and come up with things and we we, we don't hold them to the definition of up here uh, but actually silver standard's good enough and it means we can do three silvers instead of one platinum or whatever it, that's the kind of thing i'm looking at and that's the kind of I'd, I'd answer that question thank you very much luke um salma how does that answer your question for you yeah really really positive and heartening i think um, i think it also brings home that while we are trying to work in ways where we support innovation and change really positively across the NHS. We've still got more to do, haven't we, to get to a place where people really genuinely feel like, I'm gonna put my hand up for this and have a go at this. Um, but I think it, it comes back to, I think, you know, Mustafa, you hit the nail on the head, it's about culture. And it's creating a culture where people feel, feel safe to get involved. And- and to get things wrong sometimes. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Um, it's been really nice kind of watching you all. There's been a lot of overlap, but I think it's been a really interesting discussion. It's been really nice kind of seeing you all kind of connect as well. Some really different um, perspectives, I think, on some of the questions. So thank you all for um, participating. It's, it's been a pleasure.